Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, has the surge in telemedicine helped more men get the care they need but often avoid? We have results of the Cleveland Clinic's annual Mention It survey on men's health. Also this morning, our collective preoccupation with COVID-19 may be leaving children vulnerable to other health risks, why doctors are making an extra push to remind parents about the importance of meningitis vaccines. And happening around town, Color Me Happy, this year's event from NAMI of Hancock County is a celebration of a post-pandemic return to normalcy, coinciding with another significant milestone. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. It is World Physical Therapy Day today, National Date Nut Bread Day, International Literacy Day, National Actors Day, uh, National Ampersand Day, (laughs) National Ampersand Day. Is this something we really need? Uh, Apparently so. It is uh, Star Trek Day. It was on this day in 1966 that Star Trek debuted on NBC television, and the show itself, the original show, uh, only lasted for, what, three seasons? But uh, it, probably the most famous mm, middle-of-the-road kind of TV hit ever. I mean, three seasons is not an enormous success uh, in terms of television series, but Star Trek has been around you know, it's never really left us. How many spin-offs and movies has it spawned? Pretty good for a, a series that never really caught on when it was originally on television back in the mid-60s. Today is um, National Pledge of Allegiance Day today as well. And again, it uh, ties into the uh, Today in History calendar. It was on this date in 1892 that the Pledge of Allegiance appeared for the first time. It was written by one Francis Bellamy, and it appeared in The Youth's Companion, the uh, magazine for youth, um, the Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, interestingly enough, and I, I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm not making any sort of political statement when I point this out, uh, I, I just think it's interesting trivia the words under god in the pledge of allegiance were added later in the original pledge of allegiance published on this date in 1892 the words under god um were were not included one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all the words under god were not there that was added later so again i i don't mean to make any sort of political statement or anything it's just an interesting little trivial tidbit So, uh, this is maybe the biggest news of the day, and you won't hear this in any of the newscasts. You will not hear, uh, you will not hear many people probably talk about this at all, but this could have a reverberating effect. One of the reasons why you're not going to hear a whole lot about this is because, uh, it actually happened in Australia, but there, uh, could be a reverberation around the world because uh, it is, after all, the World Wide Web. The Supreme Court of Australia, Australia's highest court, uh, ruled, uh, was it yesterday? Uh, is it yesterday, today? What is it? I don't know what the time change. Anyway, the 
High Court in Australia ruled this week, we'll put it this way, that media outlets are publishers of comments that are posted by other people on their social media pages. Now, the reason why this is significant in terms of a legal precedent here is that that opens media companies up to legal action over defamatory comments that are published or that are posted by others on their social media pages. Uh, It is a landmark ruling. The court rejected the arguments from some of Australia's largest media organizations that in order to be considered a publisher of the comments, they must be aware of the defamatory content and intend to convey it. But the court found instead that by facilitating and encouraging comments, the media companies had participated in their communication. Uh, Attorneys for one Dylan Voller, an Australian man who wants to sue several media companies in that country over the issue, said this is a historic step forward in protecting individuals, especially those who are in a vulnerable position from being the subject of unmitigated social media mob attacks. The companies that uh, Mr. Voller wants to sue posted content on their Facebook pages about news stories that referred to time that he had spent in a juvenile detention center many years ago. People then posted comments on those posts about him that he claims were defamatory. Uh, Bottom line is this. If this becomes a precedent, and again, this is in Australia, but by its very nature, I mean, we are talking about the World Wide Web and social media sites like Facebook are global. So what happens in one country or on one continent quite often trickles down to other countries. And this is the long and short of it. If someone posts, at least in Australia, if someone posts something nasty about you as a response to a story that, say, we were to put on Facebook. And in the comments section, uh, someone uh, posts something that you find to be defamatory. Then you could turn around and sue us. Or you could sue, you know, if it was an ABC News story or an Associated Press story or a CNN or a Fox News or whoever posts a story, someone then in the comments section defames you you then could sue the original publisher of the story by this law by this ruling and that could have a chilling effect on the way media companies allow people to post comments on social media i mean that's one of the uh, interesting things about social media is to go in and <laughs> read the comments. Sometimes they're humorous. Sometimes they're thought-provoking. Sometimes they are intriguing. But that all could be a thing of the past if this becomes something of a global trend. Because you know, at least in Australia, the media companies, based on this ruling, basically are going to have to turn the comments section off and not allow people to comment on their stories. So... It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, out of this. But again, uh, not going to make big, huge headlines in this country, but it is certainly a story worth watching. By the way, speaking of technology, uh, this is an interesting 
story. This is from an author in the uh, in the UK. He's got a new book out, and so you know, keep that in mind. He's shilling for his book, but uh, this is the story. It says we do almost everything on our smartphones these days, but what are they doing to us? Susan Denham Wade, a UK author, says the outlook is not good. She spent four years researching and writing a book about human sight through history, which she says is humanity's ruling sense, her sense of sight. The smartphone, she says, is the pinnacle of this. We can now observe the world around us, communicate, and ping pictures of our everyday activities to friends and family through a small screen without ever leaving the house. But this over-reliance on sight via technology negatively affects the rest of our senses as we aren't utilizing the others as much. According to Susan Denham Wade, the devices, our mobile devices, may also contribute to higher levels of stress, anxiety, loneliness, and depression. They're the first thing we reach for in the morning, the last thing we check at night, and this is not good. In other words, here's another person saying that smartphones, digital technology, the downfall of society. Haven't they been saying that about every new piece of technology for the past two centuries? I mean, I whenever I see stories like this, I kind of take it with a grain of salt because they've been saying that for centuries that every new thing that comes along is going to be the downfall of society and it never seems to work out that way but anyway it is interesting it it, it certainly is a valid point that over reliance on our technology does contribute to higher levels of stress anxiety loneliness depression and all of that so we do need to temper and find a happy medium, but downfall of society? I think not. I, or maybe technology will be the uh, downfall of uh, society. This is a story out of Dallas. A restaurant, uh, at least one restaurant here in, uh, in Dallas. I'm sure there are others as well, but this is the story out of Dallas. A restaurant by the name of Laduni uh, has found a state-of-the-art solution to the problem of short staffing. Like many restaurants all across the country, they've been having trouble finding waiters, uh, servers, um, you know, that kind of thing. So they have hired, quote-unquote hired, three robots to make the rounds. Uh, The uh, co-owner of the restaurant claims he bought the robots out of necessity when workers did not return post-pandemic. He says they are not taking anyone's job because no one is showing up. What they are doing is helping those who are actually working manage the workload. The three uh, robots he has named Alexita, Panchita, and Coqueta. It's a Mexican restaurant, you understand. And they have replaced one hostess and two food runners. They... They have cartoon faces projected on screens for their faces, and they scoot around the room on wheels with bodies that feature tray shelves to carry the food. Uh, What's more, they even compliment customers and sing happy birthday. (laughs) 
to to uh, those patrons who are having a birthday. Uh, all in all, the robots uh, save the restaurant thousands of dollars a month. And I just I thought it was interesting um, that you didn't want to hire the robot, quote unquote, hire the robots. But he really didn't have any choice. Uh, and I love what he says. They're not taking anyone's job away because no one is showing up. So I guess there is that. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast becoming mostly sunny today with a high of 79. Clear tonight, a low of 57. The Ohio State Highway Patrol says 12 people were killed in 12 fatal crashes over the Labor Day holiday reporting period. Last year, 15 people were killed in 13 fatal crashes over the holiday. Troopers this year arrested 420 drivers for OVI. Troopers also provided assistance to more than 1,800 motorists over the holiday weekend. On our website, we have a complete breakdown of the Highway Patrol's Labor Day enforcement. There's a new development in an Ohio case involving an ivermectin prescription. Ivermectin is a drug used as a dewormer in horses. It's also used as an antiparasitic in humans. A woman sued a Butler County hospital after hospital administrators refused to honor a prescription for her husband. One judge determined the hospital had to honor that prescription, but another judge sided with the hospital. Infectious disease experts have warned using ivermectin as a COVID-19 treatment is a bad idea. ONN's Tracy Townsend reporting. Get more on our website. Oktoberfest Findlay is returning this year after the full event couldn't be held last year because of the pandemic. Sarah Sisser with the Hancock Historical Museum says Oktoberfest is bigger and better than ever. We have more microbreweries represented than ever before. We have 15 microbreweries coming in a wide selection of German import beers as well and some great live entertainment throughout the event. She says they have three full blocks on Main Street for Oktoberfest this year, from Main Cross to Harden Street. Oktoberfest Findlay is coming up on Saturday, September 25th in downtown Findlay. Get more on our website. Ohio State is letting fans know what they can expect when they return to the shoe for Saturday's home opener against Oregon. The university offered details on its updated mask policy, plans to go cashless, mobile ticketing, and more. Athletics Director Gene Smith is encouraging everybody to get there early on game day, saying new ticketing operations and construction around campus could lead to unexpected delays. The Ohio State-Oregon game kicks off at noon on Saturday. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, the world-renowned Cleveland Clinic is out with their sixth annual Mention It survey, where they take the temperature, if you will, on a variety of men's health issues. And joining us this morning is uh, urologist Dr. Fernando Session, uh, men's health expert, the Glickman Urological and Kidney Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And first of all, start off, and, and we've talked about the Mention It survey uh, in years past. For, for those who are not familiar, talk a little bit about the goals uh, of this uh, annual survey and, and what you are hoping to uh, bring to light to a accomplish with this survey. Yeah, thank you, Chris, uh, to have me in. It is not a secret that males are not open about their health problems. So the Cleveland Clinic developed and created uh, the Mention It uh, campaign as a way to get men to start talking about their health 
since a lot of men tend to put their health on the back burner and don't make it a priority, you know? So the objectives have to do to have to do with uh, making people being aware mm-hmm. of what the problems may be, uh, focus on preve- prevention and uh, early detection and education. And in this latest survey, it's probably no surprise when you really think about it that uh, virtual uh, visits, telehealth, uh, surged last year during the pandemic as it did for everyone, men no exception. But you say this uh, is uh, a type of uh, trend that can be beneficial for men in particular. Absolutely. This year, the Cleveland Clinic's sixth annual Mentioned Awareness campaign examined men's health attitudes toward digital health and the reasons why some men are shifting towards the use of virtual healthcare. Um, and we found that uh, at least two-thirds of men over the last year had at least one virtual uh, health visit. Um, half of the Hispanics for example, uh, prefer to have virtual visits to discuss personal issues like uh, sexual health or fertility problems. And, um, and we try to identify all those barriers that refrain men especially minority men, to access uh, health care. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because uh, from those numbers, they're certainly encouraging, but it still leaves anywhere from one-third to one-half, depending on the group uh, of men, who are still not uh, getting that interaction with the doctor that they should. So what are some of the biggest barriers uh, that exist in, in getting men to start that conversation with their doctor, either uh, in person or virtually? Absolutely. Uh, there is uh, still a lot of room for improvement, and we identified, uh, for example, cultural barriers. Uh, as, a, as, as a Hispanic man myself, I perfectly understand that perhaps uh, Hispanics are more shy or may feel more embarrassed about speaking about or discussing uh, some of these topics uh, that could be considered uh, taboo. We also found that Hispanics... Um, uh, prefer to have online visits with a doctor or a healthcare provider uh, that uh, belong to the same uh, ethnic group. And mm. on top of that, uh, some of the Hispanics, a good amount of Hispanics mentioned that they have difficulty in uh, seeking healthcare because they are unable to get time off work. So this virtual access may facilitate um access to health care, especially among those people. So you identify these barriers. Um, some of them uh, are, are certainly within the control of the uh, health care system, Cleveland Clinic, or, or really any health care system. Uh, others are a bit more of a challenge to overcome. So how do you go about addressing some of those barriers? Yes, one of the things we found to be successful is that uh, the Cleveland Clinic have been developing the annual Minority Men's Health Fair uh, and have undergone a a total of more than 54,000 screenings in these fairs. Uh, In addition, the Cleveland Clinic has the Lutheran uh, Hospital Hispanic Clinic, which offers bilingual health care services and provides cultural understanding 
to Hispanic patients. In addition, last but not least, the Cleveland Clinic uh, have, have also been developing uh, free outreach services, including screening, assessments, counseling, and, well, and, and wellness programs. So there are a bunch of things going on. Uh, to help uh, breach many of these barriers. So important, especially as it relates to the minority community, because as we know, and the st- statistics back it up, uh, that there uh, are a number of health issues that disproportionately affect minority men. Part of that uh, goes back to not having the dialogue uh, between uh, patient and doctor, but there are uh, there is a, a disproportionate uh, impact uh, on health in general among minority men so that just kind of uh, exacerbates uh, the issue or, or highlights the issue makes it even that much more important absolutely one of the key objectives of the campaign is to make people aware uh, for example we found that black african-american people especially men are six more uh, times more likely to develop kidney failure from hypertension mm-hmm. uh, hispanic men are more likely than white men to have diabetes and diabetes-related kidney failure and die from it. Uh, black and Hispanic males are at higher risk for infection and death, and death from COVID. African-American men are more likely to have a more dangerous type of prostate cancer. So there are a bunch of things that, uh, that people need to be aware of and don't wait to have symptoms to access health care. Um, and... And that's the ultimate message uh, coming out of the uh, Mention It survey and the Mention It uh, campaign uh, is that we don't want to compound these issues with a uh, with a lack of communication between uh, men and their healthcare providers. Where do folks get more information uh, about the the survey, the findings, and about the uh, Mention It uh, program? Yes, absolutely. Please access clevelandclinic.org uh, forward slash Mention It, please. Fascinating stuff. Again, uh, Dr. Fernando Cishan, uh men's health expert with the Glickman Urological and Kidney Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Doctor, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. No, thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure to be with you and with your audience. So in this run-up to back to school, we've been talking about how our preoccupation with COVID-19 has perhaps left us vulnerable to other risks for students, with one of the issues being that kids may have gotten off schedule when it comes to their other vaccinations, and that includes vaccination against meningitis. We want to talk about that this morning, and joining us are Dr. Tamara Coyne-Beasley, Endowed Chair in Adolescent Medicine at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and Patty Wukovitz, a registered nurse and co-founder of the Meningitis B Action Project. And first off, Dr. Coyne-Beasley, as we said, we've kind of talked about this before, but again, as uh, sort of a quick refresher, what are the vaccines that every adolescent needs and why are they so important? Well, thank you so much for asking me that question. I'm going to start first about talking about why adolescent vaccines are so important. And you really alluded to that. Part of it has to do with the fact that we're all going back to school and we're all going to be in congregate settings. It's really important to make sure that everyone has caught up on their vaccines, including COVID-19 vaccine if they're 12 years of age or older, so that we can prevent vaccine-preventable deaths. 
there are vaccines that prevent us not only from death, but significant illness and outbreaks. And we're not just trying to protect ourselves when we get the vaccine, we're protecting people in our community, our teachers, our college campuses. We're even protecting those individuals who are too young to be vaccinated. So for instance, with COVID, individuals who are less than uh, 12 years of age. Mm -hmm. The thing that's important to note as I begin to list what all the vaccines are that people need, if you are 12 years of age and older, it is recommended that you get the COVID-19 vaccine. And you need to know that you can get all of these vaccines at the same time. The COVID-19 vaccine does not need to be separated. Right. So what are those other routinely recommended vaccines that you asked me about? Flu is one of them, and it's very important since the flu season actually begins in September. But you also need Tdap against tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. Also an HPV vaccine, which protects against the human papilloma vaccine, uh, over virus, I should say. And again, HPV is needed for males and females. It's not just for girls. And finally, we also need meningitis vaccines. And it's important for your audience to understand that there are two vaccines for the protection of meningococcal disease. That's MEN, A-C-W-N-Y. It's those four stereotypes, again, A-C-W-N-Y. And then a second vaccine against MEN-B, and that's against stereotype B. You need both of those vaccines to actually be maximally protected against meningococcal disease and infection. And and Patty, I want to bring you into the uh, conversation here. Uh, talk about your own personal story, uh, your own personal experience with meningitis B. Well, my daughter, Kimberly, was a healthy 17-year-old high school senior in New York. She was in her last week of school, looking forward to prom, graduation, starting her nursing education in college in a few months. Her dream was be to you know, to be a pediatric nurse. Mm. And one day after school, she had a fever of 101 and she had body aches. So I gave her Motrin and she was fine the rest of the day. The following morning, things were very, very different. She woke up in a lot of pain. She had some purple dots on one of her ankles, which very quickly turned into a large purplish rash. And as a registered nurse, I knew this was very serious and I rushed her to the emergency room. When the emergency room doctor told me that she suspected Kim had bacterial meningitis and that the bacteria had actually infected her blood, I remember being shocked because I told the doctor Kim can't have bacterial meningitis because she had been vaccinated with the meningitis vaccine. Yeah. And that's when I learned that that meningitis vaccine that Kim received at 11 and 16 years old only protected her against zero groups A, C, W, and Y, and it left her unprotected against zero group B, and also known as meningitis B. Yeah, a, an important distinction because the uh, men B vaccine is uh, is more recent, and uh, it, it's interesting okay. what what is uh, really powerful about your story is you're a registered nurse and, and did not immediately see those signs they're so subtle and yet this is something that can come on so quickly and be so devastating that it is it just underscores the importance of uh, the the protection through the vaccine that we now have available right right it does underscore the protection because that's the best way to protect yourself against this horrific disease and it can kill somebody within 24 hours i yeah. mean it is that quick yeah and it's just yeah, it's are, just 
Are, it's a devastating disease. Are there other uh, proactive steps? I mean, obviously, a vaccination, first line of defense, and there's no question about that. Are there other proactive steps that you would yeah. tell parents to, to help protect their families? I mean, what else uh, can we do in addition and on top of that? Yes. So parents, parents need to know that there are two meningitis vaccines, as Dr. Coyne-Beasley explained. Many parents know that their child receives the meningitis vaccine twice, that they get it at 11 and a booster at 16. However, that's not what I mean when I say there's two meningitis vaccines. Right. Because now we have to separate an additional vaccine that protects specifically against meningitis B. And without getting both types of those meningitis vaccines, the child's not fully immunized against meningococcal. And I know that firsthand because Kimberly wasn't protected against meningococcal B. Mm. So please be proactive. Please have that conversation with your child's health care provider and ask about all vaccine preventable diseases and those vaccines that can help protect your children. And remember with vaccination, you're not only protecting yourself, but you're protecting your families and your communities. And we're all in this together. Amen to that. Um, now, as we always say, with any medical uh, issue, uh, medical subject, the best source of information is going to be your own personal uh, or family physician. However, that being said, where do we get more kind of general information on all of this? Um, you can go to meningitisbactionproject.org as well as nfid.org. Yeah, I would also just add the cdc.gov as well. Again, Dr. Tamara Coyne-Beasley and uh, Patty Wukovitz with us uh, this morning. Ladies, thank you both for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you. We know it is hard to believe it has been 20 years, but here we are. And today, largely due to the efforts of two individuals, September 11th is not a day of tragedy, although we will never forget the tragedy that occurred on 9-11, but rather it is a national day of service. Yesterday in our 9-11 plus 20 series, we shared recollections of military members who were moved to serve by the events of September 11th, but putting on the uniform is not the only way to do that. On 9-11 day, we are all encouraged to find ways of serving our communities, our country, and our fellow man. Back in 2017, with the launch of 9-11 Day, we spoke with the co-founders, David Payne and Jay Winnick. Jay, first and foremost, this is a very personal day of remembrance for you. Tell us about your brother. Uh, well, it is, Chris. Thank you for asking that. Uh, Glenn was a, uh, a, an attorney whose office was close to the World Trade Center. But for 20 years, Glenn was a volunteer firefighter and an EMT in our hometown of Long Island. So... He really had the skills and the guts to do what he did that day, which is help evacuate his law offices and then race west towards the South Tower and uh, to save lives, to save, to save people who were in danger who he did not know. And that is, of course, what firefighters do. And he lost his life when the South Tower collapsed. So he's my personal inspiration for working with David to build this National Day of Service for 9-11. So many similar stories, and we'll use uh, Glenn as a surrogate, if you will, to symbolize all of those individuals that we lost and that we remember. Talk about why it was so important for you to make this not only a day of remembrance, but moreover, uh, a day of service. Why is that so significant? Well, it is an important question because it's really not just about the victims. Uh, as essential as it is to always remember, but it's also important to remember the way the country came together in the aftermath. 
what happened on 9-12 and for months after. We really showed the world what we were made of as Americans. Uh, and we could use more of that focus on our common humanity and really uh, understand how powerful uh, we can be as a nation when we work together. You know, people say, well, what should I do? I'd say, I'd say to them, you know, do something that matters close to you, your, your heart, and you and your family. There's so many different things that can be done on 9-11 that can benefit others. We also have reached the point now where today's high schoolers and even some college students have no meaningful recollection of 9-11. And we knew we would get to this point, and, and suddenly here it is. Uh, and, and those who weren't even born yet are, are getting old enough to comprehend what happened and to ask some very deep questions. How do we talk with those young people who don't have that first-person perspective on this day? That does present a challenge because for those of us that, that experienced it, you know, we, we want to get out and serve because we remember the, the horror of the day and we're driven by that. But for younger people, you know, who didn't experience that, the question is, well, what will inspire them? And what we, you know, learned in talking to a lot of young people is that they're inspired by the idea that perhaps on 9-11 they can help make the world a better place. So they get interested in actually serving. They get interested in volunteering. They get interested in doing good deeds. So they're driven by a different sort of underlying motivation to get involved, mm -hmm. but it's just as powerful and as meaningful as the, the motivators for all of us. This is your chance to make a difference. This is your chance to make the world better and to maybe prevent another 9-11 from happening. You also point out that you would like to see that emphasized even in, this, in the classroom as young people study this as an event in history today. Uh, you're encouraging teachers to uh, use that as a springboard to inspire students to take up that mantle of service as well. In making sure that young people understand that they can impact the world around them. And the 9-11 Day Observance is a perfect time to do that. And that's something that uh, we hope carries forward generation after generation. It doesn't matter if you actually lived through 9-11. The lessons coming out of 9-11 are evergreen and essential and something we must pay attention to. Amen to that. More information on our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news is brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Now, this is rough. This is, you know, when you, when you decide to enter a life of crime and you bring your friends along for the ride, you need to pick your friends very carefully. A shoplifter in Edwardsville, Illinois, was arrested after her getaway driver took off without her. <laughs> uh, three, three women exited a uh, sporting goods store carrying stolen merchandise and ran to a nearby car. Two jumped in the front seat and took off, not bothering to unlock the back door for the third member of the crew. <laughs> The, the whole incident captured on security video and posted to social media where it already has millions of views. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, woman currently in police custody at the Madison County Jail and investigators are still looking for the other two suspects along with their gray Ford Fusion. 
<laughs> I don't know if they know who they're looking for. Did she rat them out? Did she give them names? Did she name names? Or did I would have. I mean, hey, you leave me behind to take the rap, take the fall. I'm going to rat you out. That's <laughs> Choose your shoplifting companions very carefully is the moral of the story. Other uh, broken news this morning. This has got to be a Florida story. Only in Florida would a naked woman drive her golf cart into an active police scene, giving an armed teenager hold up on a rooftop quite the show. Uh, in Pinellas County, deputies were dispatched to arrest 18-year-old Miles Abbott. Uh, but he wasn't going quietly. He climbed on top of a roof and uh, pointed a gun at police. Enter Jessica Elizabeth Smith, age 23, who was stark naked and driving a golf cart as police were negotiating with uh, Mr. Abbott. Uh, Ms. Smith rolled past several marked cruisers and into the red zone despite multiple officers' attempts to make her stop. The police wrote in their report that Ms. Smith's actions and inability to follow directions put multiple deputies at risk for potentially getting shot at. Meanwhile, the armed teenager watched from the roof as deputies tackled the naked woman, wrestled her out of her golf cart, and slapped on a pair of handcuffs. The defendant had a distinct owner odor of alcoholic beverage coming from her person, and she was completely nude, noted the report, saying she had absolutely no connection with the armed standoff. <laughs> the young man himself. <laughs> she has been charged with resisting an officer. As for the armed teenager, his reign of terror ended after a six-hour standoff. It is unknown if what he saw that day has made him reconsider a life of crime. <laughs> Only in Florida. <clears throat> Speaking of stories from Florida, Florida police have uh, charged a pair of teens with battery and conspiracy for committing a series of drive-by slushy attacks that they recorded and posted on YouTube. Authorities say Rafael Mercado, age 19, and Keziah McKay, age 18, targeted victims this past Saturday afternoon in Pinellas Park, a city uh, near Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay area. According to the criminal complaint, or city near Tampa, as Tampa Bay isn't a city, a city near Tampa in the Tampa Bay area, According to the criminal complaint, the bear purchased several slushies from a local convenience store and then proceeded to throw the frozen drinks at multiple people. After Mercado was collared by the Florida Highway Patrol troopers, he reportedly confessed that he had done similar slushy attacks a week earlier, also for the purpose of providing YouTube content for his YouTube channel. Really? That's nice. Maybe YouTube is uh, would be the collapse uh, of uh, society. I'm not sure. <clears throat> Little closer to home, a herd of goats intended to act as live lawnmowers are back in custody after they escaped and wandered around a Michigan town. Police in Southfield were tasked Monday with rounding up the animals. They had been rented from a local farmer to graze on a resident's overgrown lawn. <laughs> Police say the lawn mowing herd 
somehow escaped, was eventually taken to an animal control center, but would be returned to their owner. Goats have become a popular, eco-friendly alternative to traditional landscaping services in recent years. Area. <laughs> you gotta be careful with those goats. <laughs> Sometimes they have a mind of their own. Uh, let's see. If you ever plan, this is a, a pro tip for you. If you ever plan on scamming an insurance company by staging a hit and run accident, don't uh, don't target a Tesla. In Louisiana, Slidell Police Department authorities arrested Arthur Bates Jr. for pretending that he was injured when struck by a Tesla in a in the parking lot of a, a busy gas station. A uh, report says a man called 911 to say that he was injured after being struck by a Tesla. The man, identified as 47-year-old Arthur Bates Jr., told police that the Tesla backed into him, causing him to fall to the pavement, and that the driver then fled the scene. Uh, Mr. Bates was complaining of back, leg, and neck injuries, resulting in an ambulance and fire truck being dispatched to the location. Unfortunately for Mr. Bates, he failed to remember that Teslas are what you call smart cars and that the vehicle had recorded the whole thing. They've got cameras in Teslas all around the vehicle and it recorded the whole thing. Once police located the driver, uh, the driver turned over video footage and told police that Mr. Bates intentionally jumped behind his vehicle and staged the accident, and the video footage verified the driver's claim. <laughs> Police then headed right back to the alleged victim and slapped a pair of silver bracelets on him. Eventually, Mr. Bates came clean about his misdeed. He has been charged with falsifying a police report and will now most likely have to foot a big hospital and EMS bill. As a result. <laughs> Oops. Mm. <sighs> Undone by technology. And lastly, in the uh, broken news this morning, back to Florida, where, where a couple of uh, men uh, pl- planted a banana tree in a pothole in the middle of the road to draw attention to the condition of the pavement. Witnesses say they saw two men planting a banana tree on Honda Drive in Fort Myers. Drivers say the road is covered in potholes that have caused damage to multiple cars, and although some say the tree makes the hole easier to spot, it's never a good idea to have a tree in the middle of the road. And here's the kicker. Uh, Officials in Lee County say (laughs) that there's nothing that they can really do because the road is privately owned. They know that it's filled with potholes. They think something should be done, too. But they can't do anything because it ain't their road. (laughs) There you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. Uh, This update in the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Hello, I'm Jerry Stewart. It was 20 years ago that a normal day in America turned to be a day that will never be forgotten. The day, September the 11th, 2001. And here we are today, still mourning, still remembering, still fighting terror. Please join me here on 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM for my special 9-11 20-year tribute program, Remembering 9-11, airing Saturday morning, September the 11th at 7 a.m. Please join me. 
And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. This definitely falls into the latter category. If you have ever been overwhelmed, this is really fascinating. If you have ever been overwhelmed by the sheer number of choices you have in picking something to watch from a host of options these days, uh, you are not alone. A new survey finds adults spend more than 100 days of their lives deciding what to watch on television 100 we waste 100 days of our lives trying to decide what to watch on tv now for comparison give you an idea of just how many days 100 days represents uh there are as of today i think what 114 days left in the year so it would be from now until the end of the year choosing what to watch on television now this survey um, it should be noted, uh, was conducted in Great Britain, commissioned by a cable TV service uh, there, but uh, and they find that adults spend time flicking through eight TV channels and nine film titles before making a final decision, on average. Works out to 24 minutes and 24 seconds uh, spent deciding what TV shows and 25 minutes choosing movies or 55 days across an adult lifetime for TV choices and 57 days trying to pick a movie. Now, as staggering as this may seem, it is actually higher for people in the U.S. Vox reported back in 2019 that Americans spend 45 hours per year choosing to what to watch next. So using those numbers and extrapolating that out, someone who is 18 will spend 116 days deciding what to watch by the time they turn 80. <laughs> I mean, that's just mind-boggling kind of numbers here. The uh, survey in the UK also noted who usually makes up their minds for the house, who ultimately gets the final say, and might surprise you that women more commonly got their way at the end of the day, according to this survey in the UK. So I don't know whether that would hold true necessarily for this side of the pond, but it's women who normally is it because what is that? The, 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 uh, the old joke or the, uh, uh, stereotype of the men controlling the remote control, <laughs> but it's women who more commonly get the final say that said 41% shop for a show or a movie by genre. 37% look for who's starring in a movie or a TV show. And 28% say the length of the program is a key factor in deciding what to watch. Similarly, 23% said a, uh, well, that was 28% said the length of a movie would be a key factor in a movie to watch. 23% say the length of a TV show would influence their decision. Another thing that we may have in common with our British counterparts, 49% in that UK survey said that they got so overwhelmed, and I have done this, 49% in this survey in the UK say that they get so overwhelmed with all of the choices and trying to decide what to watch that they ultimately decide not to watch anything. <laughs> and I've been there. And what really gets me now that I, I see all of this data is I spend all of that time <laughs> and then decide to watch nothing 
I didn't realize just how much of a waste of my life that is. I'm going to talk about uh, an event coming up this weekend from the folks at NAMI of Hancock County. Uh, this year's Janelle Holman Color Me Happy Walk and 5K is coming up. And Jen Galbraith from uh, NAMI of Hancock County with us uh, this morning. Jen, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chris. Good to have you with us uh, in the studio. This is such a, uh, a neat event, uh, both in terms of, uh, obviously, a fundraiser, and uh, but uh, more importantly than that, to just raise awareness. Absolutely. Um, NAMI of Hancock County, um, their mission is to promote mental health and um, trying to reduce the stigma of mental health conditions Mm -hmm. through support advocacy and education. You know, one of the things over the past year or so uh, that we have all learned, I, I think, uh, it's removed some of that stigma because we all have gotten a sense of uh, some of the anxiety and the stress and uh, it, even in some cases depression uh, that uh, some people deal with all the time. We get a, a little bit of a sense of, of that. Do you do you sense that over the past year we have maybe removed a little bit of that stigma naturally because of what we've collectively been through? Um, I, I definitely think so. Um, it's becoming more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, mental health counselors and um, providers are, are seeing more of this. Mm-hmm. So I think individuals that are struggling are reaching out to other people yeah. to get yeah. to get support. And that's a good thing. I mean, ultimately, Absolutely. that is uh, maybe if there's one positive that comes out of all of this, uh, it's that we understand that this is not something to be uh, afraid of, fearful of, or apprehensive toward. It's just it is a real thing, and and it is something that people deal with on different levels, uh, you know, in their lives for a variety of reasons. So the Color Me Happy Walk uh, is now. This was something that uh, last year did not happen, correct? It did not happen, yeah, because of the pandemic and all of the stipulations around safety. Right, we, we decided not to move forward. So this is a huge celebration to be able to be out again post pandemic, and also it's uh, not. Uh, well, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's not, I'm sure, but it's on September 11th and the uh, 20th anniversary of uh, 9-11, also uh, certainly a uh, very uh, historic uh, moment uh, that impacted a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah. So give us uh, all of the details uh, of this event. Uh, as we said, it is coming up on Saturday. Yes. Um, uh, Saturday, uh, the race actually starts at 10. It's mm-hmm. a, a race in Walk 5K. Um, all the activities start at nine and those include the registration. Um, we are accepting same day registration. We have several, um, really fun activities uh, going on for all age groups. There's a hot yoga class that, um, is in front of the band shelter starting at nine. Great for stretching out before the race, a kid zone, um, a lot of fun activities for children, a mobile health clinic, which I believe is the first time we've had something like this. Yeah. So people who have questions about COVID, the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, and some of those instances about mental health may even come sure. up yeah. um, during those conversations. We'll have a booth for NAMI, um, giving out support materials, and a- answer any 
questions. Yeah. Like breakfast with donuts uh, donated by Fort Finley. Yeah, donuts. donuts. That's all you need to say. Donuts. From Fort Finley. (laughs) Uh, Coffee donated by Coffee Amici. And then bananas donated by uh, Fresh Encounter. Um, So the race starts at 10. And as uh, walkers and runners are going by, there will be... As you know, with these kind of events, color that is yeah. thrown at everybody, and it's like a, it's a corn, <laughs> it's a corn powder base. Nothing to be afraid of. There's a reason why they call it the color me happy. Yeah, uh, exactly. walking 5K because you're walking through and and they're like coloring you. Exactly, and that's just part of the whole celebration. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so wear something that you are comfortable getting colored. Yes, <laughs> yes. Something that, um, I mean, it, it definitely washes out. But, yeah. Um, something else I wanted to, to bring up. There is a second event at noon. It's in honor of National Suicide uh, Prevention Month, and it's called Suicide Prevention and Remembrance Day. It will be from noon to uh, 2 o'clock, also at Riverside Park. Mm-hmm. And live music and art show, resource fair at 11 or 1.30, um, the Remembrance Day will actually happen. And this is where we have a variety of speakers talking about the seriousness of, of suicide and mm-hmm. how we can work with individuals suffering to get well yeah Uh, so an entire day's worth of events Uh, a lot of fun a lot of great information though uh and and this also provides an opportunity i mean we talk about removing the stigma and how uh based on our collective experience over the past year and a half a lot of folks uh, uh, maybe can uh, understand this a little bit better than what they could before Mm -hmm. but it also provides a very um, a very easy way for individuals who have questions to bring those questions uh, out. I mean, Absolutely. it's very friendly, very, I don't want to say non-confrontational. That's not the word that I'm looking for, but you get the ideas. Mm-hmm. The, that's really the idea of it. Right. Um, part of the event as well is when we're remembering these individuals who um, have suffered and have made the decision to have death by suicide, um, we're having a butterfly. We mm. release butterflies. Um, we have a special area where the butterflies actually will live. And um, then over, there's a bridge that goes over the river. We can actually um, throw leaves or some kind of a remembrance. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there are a variety of ceremonial um, things that we'll be doing. Yeah. And it all begins with the Color Me Happy Walk and 5K. And uh, again, the registration, you can register the day of yes, on Saturday. Uh, and the registration begins when again? Nine o'clock. Nine o'clock. Okay. So we'll go through the timeline here. Nine o'clock uh, for the registration. And then the event begins at 10. You step yes. off at, at 10 o'clock. And uh, like you said, a lot of other things going on uh, in the morning. And mm-hmm. then uh, later than after uh, all of it is over, uh, recognizing suicide prevention uh, yes. at, uh, at, noon. Well, at noon. Yeah, noon so. to two. Okay, and this is all happening at Riverside Park right around the Banchell area. Yes. Right? So, okay. yes. 
very good uh, stuff. We've got a link up on our webpage for more information about the uh, Janelle Holman Color Me Happy Walk and 5K and more information about uh, NAMI of Hancock County, uh, the national local chapter of the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Again, uh, Jen Galbraith with us uh, this morning. Jen, thanks very much for the information. We appreciate it. Thank you. Going to a good, uh, good event on uh, Saturday. And that will put the wrap on our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.